0: Chapter six, part two of the uttermost farthing. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. The uttermost farthing by R. Austin Freeman. Chapter six, the trail of the serpent. Part two. I breathed more freely, notwithstanding that the gas, having partially diffused upwards to the level of the opening, now began to filter through to my side. I waited a minute or two, listening to the breathing of the two murderers as it grew moment by moment more stenorious and irregular and then, having filled up the stove, went down to the first floor, and sat awhile by the open window, to breathe the relatively fresh air. All was now quiet in the street. No doubt the guard had been strengthened, but I did not look out. It was as well not to be seen at that hour in the morning. As I sat by the window I thought about the two men in that deadly room. It was a thousand pities that they should be lost to science, yet there was no help for it, even if i had decided to acquire them i could not have done so for by the very worst of luck i had used up my last barrel and had neglected to lay in a fresh stock but of course the police knew that they were there i rested for half an hour or so and then went upstairs to see how matters were progressing no light now came through the opening in the wall for the paraffin lamp had either burned out or been extinguished by the accumulating gas i listened attentively the harsh metallic ticking of a cheap american clock was plainly even intrusively, audible. Otherwise no sound came from that chamber of death. I drew the sliding panel right back, held aside the dangling garments, and, climbing through into the cupboard, pushed open the doors. A faint glimmer of light from the street made dimly visible the mattress on the floor, and the two indistinct dark shapes stretched out on it. I stepped quickly across the room, breathing as little as possible of the unspeakably foul air, and struck a wax match. It burned dimly and smokily, but showed me the two murderers, lying in easy postures, their faces livid and ghastly in hue, but peaceful enough in expression. When I lowered the match its flame dwindled and turned blue, and at eighteen inches from the floor it went out as if dipped in water. At that height the heavy gas must have been nearly pure. The room was a veritable grotto del cane. I stooped quickly, holding my breath, and felt the wrists of the two men. They were chilly to the touch, and no vestige of pulse was perceptible. I shook them both vigorously, but failed to elicit any responsive movement. They were quite limp and inert, and I had no doubt that they were dead. My work was done. The policemen were now safe, whatever follies they might commit, and it only remained for me to remove the traces of the fairy godmother who had labored through the night to save them from their own exuberant courage. Passing back through the opening, I drew away the now unnecessary pipe closed the two panels and carried the little stove down to my bedroom i looked at the unruffled bed mute but eloquent witness to the night's activity and deciding as a measure of prudence to give it the appearance of having been slept in took off my boots and crept in between the sheets but i was not in the least degree drowsy quite the contrary i was all agog to see the end of the comedy in which i had all unknown taken the leading part so that after tossing about for a few minutes i sprang out of bed resumed my boots, and poured out a basin full of water to refresh myself by a wash, and now once more observed the strangely indirect lines of causation. The towels on the horse were damp and none too clean. I flung them into the dirty linen basket, and dragged open the drawer in which the clean ones were kept. It was the bottom drawer of a cheap pine chest that I had bought in Whitechapel High Street. That chest of drawers was of unusual size. It was four feet wide by nearly five feet high, and the two bottom drawers were each fully eighteen inches deep, and were far larger than was necessary for my modest stock of household linen. I pulled out the bottom drawer, then, and as its great cavity yawned before me, it offered not an unnatural suggestion. The length of an average man's head and trunk is under thirty-six inches. Allowing a few inches more for his feet and ankles, a cavity forty-eight inches long is amply sufficient for his accommodation. Flinging out the towels and sheets that lay in the drawer, I got in and lay down with my knees drawn up. Of course there was room, and to spare. It was an interesting fact, but not very applicable to the present circumstances. Still, it set me thinking. I went into the front room and glanced out the open window. A faint lightning of the murky sky heralded the approach of dawn, and from afar came the murmuring commencing of traffic out on High Street. I was about to turn away when my ear caught a new and unusual sound rising above that distant murmur the measured tread of feet mingled with the clatter of horses' hooves, and a heavy, metallic rumbling. I looked out cautiously in the direction whence the sounds came, and was positively stupefied with amazement. At the end of the street I saw, by the light of the lamps, a company of soldiers appearing round the corner, and taking up a position across the road. I watched breathlessly. Soon, at a sign from the officer, the men spread mats on the muddy ground and lay down on them, and then appeared a train of horses, dragging a field-piece or quick-firing gun, which was halted behind the infantry and unlimbered. A minute later the black shapes of a number of soldiers appeared on the skyline as they crept along the parapets of the opposite houses where, save for their heads and the barrels of their rifles, they presently disappeared. It seems that I had misjudged the police in the matter of caution. It almost seemed that my labors had been useless." for surely these portentous preparations indicated some masterpiece of strategy. What an anticlimax it would be when the defenders of the fort were found to be dead! But what still a greater anticlimax if they were not there at all? At this moment a police sergeant strolled down the middle of the road and, observing me, motioned to me with his hand to get inside out of harm's way. I obeyed with grim amusement, thinking of that absurd anticlimax— and somehow this idea began to connect itself with those two bottom drawers. But the casks were the difficulty. The cooper from which I had obtained them sometimes kept me waiting nearly a week before supplying them, for I was only a small customer, and that would never do even at this time of year. Besides, the police would make a rigid search. Not that that would have mattered if I could have made proper arrangements for the concealment and removal of the specimens. But unfortunately I could not. The specimens would have to go, to be borne out ingloriously in the face of the besieging force, limp and passive, like a couple of those very helpless guys that are wont to be produced, by what Mrs. Kosminsky would call their childrens. There would be a certain grim appropriateness in the incident, for this was the 5th of November. The generation of new ideas is chiefly a matter of association. The ideas guys, Mrs. kosminski and the 5th of November, unconsciously formed themselves into a group from which in an instant there was evolved a new and startling train of thought. At first it seemed wild enough, but when the two bottom drawers joined in the synthetic process, a complete and consistent scheme began to appear. A flush of pleasurable excitement swept over me, and as I raced upstairs fresh details added themselves, and fresh difficulties were propounded and disposed of. I slid open the panels, stepped through, and, holding my breath, strode across the poisoned room with only one quick glance at the two still forms on the mattress. Removing the barricading chair, I unlocked and unbolted the door, and passed out, closing it after me. Mrs. Kuzminski's room was at the back, a dreadful nest of dirt and squalor, piled almost to the ceiling with unclassifiable rubbish. The air was so stifling that I was tempted to raise the heavily curtained window a couple of inches, and thereby got a useful idea when— Peeping over the curtain, I saw the flat leads of a projecting lower story. The merchandise piled on all sides, and even under the bed, included very second-hand wearing apparel—sheets, blankets, crockery, and toys. Among them were the fireworks, the masks and other appliances for commemorating the never-to-be-forgotten gunpowder treason, and a couple of large balls of dark-colored cord sometimes used by coasters for securing their loads. That gave me an idea, too. "'as did the frowsily smart female garments. "'I appropriated four of the largest masks "'and a quantity of oakum for wigs, "'some colored paper streamers and hat-frills, two huge and disreputable dresses, "'Mrs. Kosminski's own, I suspected, "'the skirts of which I crammed with straw from a hamper, 2 large-sized ragged suits of clothes, "'a woman's straw hat, four pairs of men's gloves, "'and the biggest top-hat that I could find. "'These I put apart in a heap with one of the balls of cord.' From the other ball I cut off some eight fathoms of cord, and, poking it out through the opening in the window, let it drop on the leads beneath. Then I conveyed my spoil in one or two journeys across the murderer's room, passed it through the opening, and closed the panel after me. Prudence suggested that I should dispose of these things first, and accordingly I stowed two masks, two pairs of gloves, one suit of clothes, and one dress in the large chest of drawers. The rest I carried down to the back yard, where there was already a quantity of lumber, belonging to a neighboring green grocer. Returning upstairs, I called in at the bedroom to transfer the scanty contents of the two large drawers into the upper ones, and then proceeded once more to the second-floor front. Time was passing, and the glimmer of the gray dawn was beginning to struggle in faintly through the dirty windows. As I drew back the slide I became aware of a sound which, soft as it was, rang the knell of my newly-formed hopes. I had closed the door of the murderer's room and locked it, but had not shot the bolt, Now I could distinctly hear someone fumbling gently at the keyhole, apparently with a picklock. It was most infuriating. At the very last moment, when success was within my grasp, I was to be foiled and all my neatly laid plans defeated. And, to make it a thousand times worse, I had not even taken the precaution to examine the dead miscreant's hair. With an angry and foolish exclamation, I reached through the opening and drew the cupboard doors to, leaving only a small chink. Then I shut myself in my own cupboard, to exclude the dim light, and closing the panel to within an inch, waited on events with my hand on the knob, ready to shut it at a moment's notice. The great strategic move was about to begin, and I was curious to see what it would be. The bolt of the lock shot back, the door creaked softly, there was a pause, and then a voice whispered, "'Why, they seem to be asleep. Keep them covered, Smith, and shoot if they move.' Soft footfalls advanced across the room. Someone gave a choking cough, and then a brassy voice fairly shouted, "'Why, man, they're dead! My lord! What a let-off!' An unsteady laugh told of the effort it had cost the worthy officer to take this frightful risk. "'Yes,' said another voice, "'they're dead enough. They've cheated us after all. Not that I complain of that. But my eyes, sir, what a sell! Think of all those tommies and that machine-gun. Ha, ha! Oh, lord!' I suppose the beggars poisoned themselves when they saw the game was up. He laughed again, and the laugh ended in a fit of coughing. Not they, sergeant, said the other. It was that coke-stove that gave them their ticket. Can't you smell it? And by Jove it will give us our ticket if we don't clear out. We'll just run down and report and send for a couple of stretchers. Hadn't I better wait here, sir, while you're gone? asked the sergeant. Lord, no, man. What for? We shall want three stretchers if you do. Come along. Pooh leave the door open i listened incredulously to their retreating footsteps it seemed hardly possible that they should be so devoid of caution and yet why not the men were dead and dead men are not addicted to sudden disappearances but this case was going to be an exception i had given the specimens up for lost when i heard the police enter but now i opened the slide sprang through the opening and strove over to the mattress One after the other I picked up the prostrate ruffians, carried them across, and bundled them through the aperture. Then I came through myself, shut the cupboard doors, closed both panels carefully, shut up my own cupboard, and carried the specimens down to my bedroom. With their knees drawn up, they packed quite easily in the large drawers. I shut them in, locked the drawers, pocketed the key, washed my hands, and went down to the parlor where I rapidly laid the breakfast table. At any moment now the police might come to inspect, and whenever they came, they would find me ready. I did not waste time on breakfast, that could wait. Meanwhile, I fell to work with the materials in the yard. In addition to the handcart, there was now a costler's barrow, the property of a greengrocer, to whom also belonged a quantity of lumber, including some bundles of stakes and several hampers filled with straw. With these materials, and those that I had borrowed from Mrs. Kosminski, I began rapidly to build up a pair of life-size guys, one male and one female. I put them together very roughly and sat them side by side in the barrow, leaning against the wall, and to each I attached a large ticket on which I scrawled the name of the person it represented, one being the highly unpopular minister, Mr. Todd Leakes, and the other the notorious Mrs. Gamway. They were very sketchily built and would have dropped to pieces at a touch, but that was of no consequence, the time factor was the important one and I had worked at such speed that I had huddled them into a pretty plausible completeness when the inevitable peal at the house-bell disturbed my labours. I darted into the parlour, crammed a piece of bread into my mouth, and rushed to the shop-door, chewing frantically. As I opened the door, an agitated police inspector burst in, followed by a sergeant. "'Good morning, gentlemen,' I said suavely. "'Hair-cutting or shaving?' I shall not record the inspector's reply. I was really shocked. I had no idea that responsible officials use such language." In effect, they wished to look over the premises. Of course I gave them instant permission, and followed them in their tour of inspection on the pretext of showing them over the house. The inspector was in a very bad temper, and the sergeant was obviously depressed. They conversed in low tones as they stumped up the stairs, and I heard the sergeant say something about an awful suck-in. "'Oh, don't talk a bit,' snapped the inspector. "'It's enough to make a cat sick. But what beats me is how those devils could have stuck the air of that room.' It would have settled my hash in five minutes. Yes, agreed the sergeant, and how they could have let themselves down from that window without being spotted. I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't seen the cord. The constables must have been asleep. Yes, grunted the inspector. Thick-headed louts. Let's have a look out here. He strode to the second floor back and threw open the window. Now you see, he continued, what I mean. This house has no connection with the next one. That projecting wing cuts it off. This backyard opens into Bell's alley. The yard next door opens into Kosher Court. That's the way they went. They couldn't have got to this house, excepting by the roof, and we've seen that they went down, not up. He stuck his head out the window and looked down sourly at the guys. "'Those things yours?' he asked gruffly, pointing at the effigies. "'No,' I answered. "'I think one of Piper's men is getting them ready to take round.' The inspector grunted and moved away. He walked into the front room, looked in the cupboard, glanced round, and went downstairs. On the first floor he made a perfunctory inspection of the rooms, glancing in at my bedroom, and then went down to the ground floor. From thence the two officers descended to the cellar, which they examined more thoroughly, even prodding the sawdust in the bin, and so up to the back yard. Here, at the sight of the guys, the sergeant's woeful countenance brightened somewhat. Ha! he exclaimed. Mrs. Gamway! I saw a good deal of her when I was in the Westminster Division. I've often thought I'd like to—and, by Jiminy, I will— he squared up fiercely at the helpless-looking effigy of the lady and, with a vicious round-arm punch, sent its unstable head flying across the yard. The blow, and its effect, seemed to rouse his destructive instincts, for he returned to the attack with such ferocity that in a few seconds he had reduced not only the fictitious Mrs. Gamway, but the right Honorable Todd Leakes, also, into a heap of ruin. "'Stop that foolery, Smith,' snarled the inspector. "'You'll give the poor devil the trouble of building them up all over again.' Come along. He unlocked the gate and stood for a moment looking back at me. I suppose you've heard nothing in the night, he said. Not a sound, I answered, adding. I shan't open the shop until the evening, and I shall probably go out for the day. Would you like to have the key? The inspector shook his head. No, I don't want the key. I've seen all I want to see. Good morning. He stumped out, followed by his subordinate. I drew a deep breath as I relocked the gate. I was glad he had refused the key, though I had thought it prudent to make the offer. Now I was at liberty to complete my arrangements at leisure. My first proceeding, after locking up the shop, was to rig up, with the green grocer's stakes and Mrs. Kosminski's cord, a pair of firm standards to support the guys. Then I took a hearty breakfast, after which I repaired to my bedroom, with a hamper of straw, a bundle of small stakes, and a quantity of old rags. The process of converting the specimens into quite convincing guise was not difficult. Tying up the heads in large pieces of rag, I fastened the big masks to the fronts of the globular bundles, and covered the remainder with the masses of oakum to form appropriate wigs. Each figure was then clothed in the bulky garments borrowed from Mrs. Kosminski's stock, and well stuffed with straw, portions of which I allowed to protrude at all the apertures. A suitable stiffness was imparted to the limbs by pieces of stick poked up inside the clothing, and smaller sticks gave the correct, starfish-like spread of the gloved hands. When they were finished, the illusion was perfect. As the two effigies sat on the floor, with their backs against the wall, stiff, staring, bloated, and grotesquely horrible, not a soul would have suspected them. I carried the male guy down to the yard, sat him on the barrow, and put on his hat, taking with me the remains of the ruined guys, which I decided to put away in the drawers. I returned for the second effigy, I lashed the two figures very securely to the standards, fixing on their hats firmly, and attached the name-cards. Then I went into the shop to attend to my own appearance. I had brought back from my Bloomsbury house the shabby overcoat and battered hat that I had worn on the last few expeditions. These I now assumed, and having fixed on my cheek a large cross of sticking-plaster, which pulled down my eyebrow and pulled up the corner of my mouth, begrimed my face, reddened my nose, and carefully tinted in a not-too-empathetic black eye, I was sufficiently transmogrified to deceive even my intimate friends. Now I was ready to start, and now was the crucial moment. I went out into the yard, unlocked the gate, trundled the barrel out into the alley, and locked the gate behind me. At the moment there was not a soul in sight, but from the street close by came the unmistakable murmur of a large crowd— I must confess that I felt a little nervous. The next few minutes would decide my fate. I grasped the handles of the barrel and started forward resolutely. As I rounded the curve of the alley, a densely packed throng appeared ahead. Faces turned toward me and broke into grins. The murmur rose into a dull roar, and, as the people drew aside to make way for me, I plunged into the heart of the throng and raised my voice in a husky chant. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. Through the interstices of the crowd I could see the soldiers still drawn up by the curb, and even the machine-gun was yet in position. Suddenly the inspector and the sergeant appeared, bustling through the crowd. The former caught sight of me and, waving his hand angrily, shouted, "'Take that thing away from here! Move him out of the crowd, Maloney!' And a gigantic constable pounced on me with a broad grin, snatched the barrow-handles out of my hand, and started off at a trot that made the effigies rock in the most alarming manner. "'Holler, Bahoys!' shouted the grinning constable and the Bahoies complied with raucous enthusiasm. At the outskirts of the crowd Constable Maloney resigned in my favor, and it was at this moment that I noticed a manifest plain-clothes officer observing my exhibits with undue attention. But here fortune favored me. For the same instant I saw a man attempt to pick a pocket under the officer's very nose. The pickpocket caught my eye and moved off quickly. I pulled up, and pointing at the thief, bawled out, "'Stop that man! Stop him!' the pickpocket flung himself into the crowd and made off. The startled loafers drew hastily away from him. Men shouted, women screamed, and the plain-clothes officer started in pursuit. And in the whirling confusion that followed, I trundled away briskly into Middlesex Street and headed for Spitalfields. My progress through the squalid streets was quite triumphal. A large juvenile crowd attended me with appropriate vocal music, and adults cheered from the pavements, though no one embarrassed me with gifts but, for all my outward gaiety, I was secretly anxious. It was barely ten o'clock, and many hours of the dreary November day had yet to run before it would be safe for me to approach my destination. The prospect of tramping the streets for some ten or twelve hours with this very conspicuous appendage was far from agreeable, to say nothing of the increasing risk of detection, and I looked forward to it with gloomy forebodings. If a suspicion arose, I could be traced with the greatest ease— and in any case I should be spent with fatigue before evening. Reflecting on these difficulties, I had decided to seek some retired spot where I could dismount the effigies, cover them with the tarpon that was rolled up in the barrow, and take a rest, when once more circumstances befriended me. All through the night and the morning the ordinary winter haze had hung over the town, but now, by reason of a change of wind, the haze began rapidly to thicken into a definite fog, I set down the barrow and watched with thankfulness the mass opaque of yellow vapour filling the street and blotting out the sky. As it thickened and the darkness closed in, the children strayed away, and only one solitary loafer remained. "'Ard luck for you, mate, this ere frog,' he remarked. "'At you've took all that trouble, too.' He little knew how much. "'But it's no go. You better get him home whilst you can find your way. This is going to be a blacken. I thanked him for his sympathy, and moved on into the darkening vapour. Close to Spittle Square I found a quiet corner where I quickly dismounted the guys, covered them with the tarpon, and, urged by a new anxiety from the rapidly growing density of the fog, groped my way on to Norton Folgate. Here I moved forward as quickly as I dared, turned up Great Eastern Street, and at length, to my great relief, came out on to Old Street. It was none too soon as i entered the well-known thoroughfare the fog closed down into impenetrable obscurity the world of visible objects was extinguished and replaced by chaos of confused sounds even the end of my barrow faded away into spectral uncertainty and the curb against which i kept my left wheel grinding looked thin and remote opportune as the fog was it was not without its dangers of which the most immediate was that i might lose my way I set down the barrow, and, detaching the little compass that I always carry in my watch-guard, laid it on the tarpon. My course, as I knew, lay about west-south-west, and with the compass before me I could not go far wrong. Indeed, its guidance was invaluable. Without it I could never have found my way through those miles of intricate streets. When a stationary wagon or other obstruction sent me out into the road, it enabled me to pick up the curb again unerringly. It mapped out the corners of the intersecting streets. It piloted me over the wide crossings of the city road and Aldersgate Street, and kept me happily confident of my direction as I groped my way like a fog-bound ship on an invisible sea. I went as quickly as was safe, but very warily, for a collision might have been fatal. Listening intently, with my eye on the compass and my wheel at the curb, I pushed on through the yellow void until a shadowy post, at a street corner, revealed itself by its parish initials, as that at the intersection of Red Lion Street and Theobald's Row. I was nearly home. Another ten minutes' careful navigation brought me to a corner which I believed to be the one opposite my own house. I turned back a dozen paces, put down the barrow, and crossed the pavement, with a compass in my hand, lest I should not be able to find the barrow again. I came against the jamb of a street-door. I groped across the door, itself. I found the keyhole of the familiar yell pattern." I inserted my key and turned it, and the door of the museum entrance opened. I had brought my ship into port. I listened intently. Someone was creeping down the street, hugging the railings. I closed the door to let him pass, and heard the groping hands sweep over the door as he crawled by. Then I went out, steered across to the barrow, picked up one of the specimens and carried it into the hall, where I laid it on the floor, returning immediately for the other. When both the specimens were safely deposited, I came out, "'softly closing the door after me with the key, "'and once more took up the barrel-handles. "'Slowly I trundled the invaluable little vehicle up the street, "'never losing touch of the curb, "'flinging the stakes and cordage into the road as I went, "'until I had brought it to the corner of a street "'about a quarter of a mile from my house. "'And there I abandoned it, "'making my way back as fast as I could to the museum. "'My first proceeding on my return "'was to carry my treasures into the laboratory, "'light the gas and examine their hair.' I had really some hopes that one of them might be the man I sought. But, alas, it was the old story. They both had coarse black hair of the mongoloid type. My enemy was still to seek. Having cleaned away my make-up, I spent the rest of the day pushing forward the preliminary processes, so that these might be completed before decay's effacing fingers should obliterate the details of the integumentary structures. In the evening I returned to Whitechapel and opened the shop, proposing to purchase the dummy skeletons on the following day, and to devote the succeeding nights and early mornings to preparation of the specimens. The barrow turned up next day in the possession of an undeniable tramp who was trying to sell it for ten shillings, and who was accused of having stolen it, but was discharged for want of evidence. I compensated the green grocer for the trouble occasioned by my carelessness in leaving the back gate open, and thus the incident came to an end, with one important exception, for there was a very startling sequel. On the day after the expedition, I had the curiosity to open the panel and go through into the room that the murderers had occupied, which had now been locked up by the police. Looking round the room, my eye lighted on a shabby cloth cap lying on the still undisturbed mattress just below the pillow. I picked it up and looked it over curiously, for by its size I could see that it did not belong to either of the men whom I had secured. I took it over to the curtained window and carefully inspected its lining, and suddenly I perceived— clinging to the coarse cloth, a single short hair, which, even to the naked eye, had a distinctly unusual appearance. With a trembling hand I drew out my lens to examine it more closely, and, as it came into the magnified field, my heart seemed to stand still, for, even at that low magnification, its character was unmistakable. It looked like a tiny string of pale gray beads." Grasping it in my fingers, I dashed through the opening, slammed the panels to, and rushed down to the parlor where I kept a small microscope. My agitation was so intense that I could hardly focus the instrument, but at last the object on the slide came into view—a broad, variegated stripe, with its dark medulla and the light rings of air bubbles at regular intervals. It was a typical ringed hair. And what was the inference? The hair was almost certainly Piragoff's. Piragoff was a burglar, a ruthless murderer, and he had ringed hair. The man whom I sought was a burglar, a ruthless murderer, and had ringed hair. Then Piragoff was my man. It was bad logic, but the probabilities were overwhelming, and I had had the villain in the hollow of my hand, and he had gone forth unscathed. I ground my teeth with impotent rage. It was maddening. All the old passion and yearnings for retribution surged up in my breast once more. My interest in the new specimens almost died out. I wanted Piragoff, and it was only the newborn hope that I should yet lay my hand on him that carried me through that time of bitter disappointment. End of chapter 6